If you have your Bibles, I, uh, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians as we continue in our series through this letter. Our passage this morning is Colossians 1, and we'll read verse 24 through Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. You can see the text printed for you just below the song we sang. Again, we'll begin our reading at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The last couple of weeks, there are a couple of lines that have have stood out to me. One is the one we just finished with, which is this rejoicing of Paul to see the firmness of their faith. And then last week, we looked at this this hope that doesn't shift, um, a faith that's established and secured. So you see these ideas of establishment and and the firmness of of the faith. And I've thought about those because uh, two studies came out in the last couple of weeks that I think Um, we as Christians should take particular account of. I'm sure many of you saw the first one I'm going to mention. This one came out of the Pew Research Center, and it showed that if the number of Christians under 30 abandoning their faith continues at this pace and just accelerates slightly, then by 2045, it's most likely that, that Christians will be a minority in this country. Now, that's a staggering statistic for this reason only. Uh, Approximately 90% of Americans identified as Christians in the early 1990s. In the Clinton administration, nearly 90% of Americans professed some kind of adherence to Christianity. Skip ahead to 2020, just a couple of years ago, that number was 64%. And then if things don't change, around 2045, uh, they... Christians will be a minority in this country, and if that continues, by 2070, just a little under 50 years from now, less than 35% of Americans will have an adherence to Christianity. 
Now, I'm as cynical as anyone else when, what does it mean to be an adherent of Christianity? I, I could be just as cynical as anyone else, but let's just take a step back. Those are, those are jarring numbers. It's something of a wake-up call, isn't it? I have three kids. My own children will be a little under middle age when this major demographic shift is on place to happen. They will need a firm foundation upon which to stand. They always did, right? That's the thing. They always did. Uh, But I think these kinds of numbers should maybe wake us up and, and, and have us realize the context in which these kinds of shifts are happening. So that's the first study. I think that one is, is, is really powerful. Now let me give you a second one. This one just came out a couple of weeks ago from the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. And this study wanted to look at what did uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, what did it do for, for churches? And in particular for church shopping. And it identified a huge surge because the opportunity cost was completely eliminated. And what they meant was you can now shop for a church by clicking a live stream. Uh, No one's going to ask you, where did you come from? Your own church isn't going to ask where you have been. Now you can just shop around by clicking a button. And then they identified a further problem, which is how much of of church shifting has been from this partisan-driven perspective. A partisan-driven religious change which allows individuals to sort into religious environments that match their political outlooks. Blue churches and red churches. Now, I think these polls go together, because if our faith is no thicker than our consumer preferences and political views, then when the waves come, we're going to be found out, right? Because we built the house on sand and not a solid rock. And I think both studies force us to think about what does it mean to follow Christ in this present age, and and I confess it's scary. I'd be lying to you if these weren't kind of scary statistics. But, but I also don't think they're necessarily discouraging because they kind of make Colossians and passages like Colossians come alive. The minority alien people in Colossae, they don't seem so strange and they won't seem so strange to our children. Their struggles won't seem so unrelatable and it means the apostles' instructions and exhortations and prescriptions are going to matter in a way that, let's be honest, we merely pay lip service to. But we want to be a people who are firm in our faith. We want to be a people who do not shift from the hope of the gospel. And this morning, we're going to fortify ourselves just a little bit further. We're going to fortify ourselves in the word of God so that we won't be, right? That together, we will, we will we'll do this as an exercise in community, that we won't be a people who shift in our hope. But we are established and secure. And I think Paul's little almost biographical paragraph that we just looked at a couple minutes ago, I think this is a great passage to to, to establish ourselves upon because what we see is the message that we have to have, and Paul calls it the mystery. And then from that message and from that mystery, and I hope this is old hat and I hope we're just celebrating everything that we already think a church should be doing, from that we see that the goal of the message is maturity, It's not intellectual knowledge, it's maturity. We'll explore what that means. And then we're going to wrap up with what is the package of that message? What does the ministry look like? Because the message, uh, it's always accompanied by a way that it it looks like something. It's a package. We'll see what I I mean by that. So we're looking at the message. The message leads to maturity. And that message is always in the package of a cross-shaped ministry. Okay? So first of all, let's explore the message. 
Again, Paul calls it uh, the mystery. Why is he talking about mysteries? That sounds exciting. Why is he using this word? Look at verse 26. Paul speaks of the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right there, if we could just put that on the board, if we could just say, man, what is the goal of all of this? You would say it is, it is to realize that everything about my faith, everything about Christianity is completely summarized in this reality of Christ in you, Christ in me, and then this hope of glory, this future hope that we share together. But again, Paul couches this idea in the language of mystery. So he uses the word twice, as we just read, and then also in chapter 2, verse 2. And one of the reasons Paul uses this word mystery is that this is a word known to the religious experience of of the world of the Colossian church. In in the Greco-Roman world, this word mystery has lots of capital. Uh, They were surrounded by so-called mystery religions. These were religions that claimed to have wisdom and understanding that was beyond the common people. We've talked about how, right, uh, the the mass of humanity is down here with with everyday concerns. We want to ascend to this higher level of knowledge. But this knowledge is also secretive. It's also esoteric. Uh, It wasn't for the common people. It was for those who jumped through the spiritual hoops, those who considered and went through mystical routines. They went to the gurus who had this secret, deeper wisdom and knowledge. They knew the deep, penetrating secrets of the universe. And the nature of that false teaching was all around Colossae at this time. If you really want to tap into the spiritual fullness of the universe, if you want to know God, Jesus may be a part of that, but you need to do something else. You need to go deeper. I think there's a general human appeal here that would have been attractive to them. It's the same appeal that makes every generation drawn towards secrets and conspiracy theories because we gravitate toward being in the in-group. We gravitate toward those expressions of righteousness. Here are are, are the majority of people and how they operate, and yet I have the secret insights that make me, the word I would use is, it makes me righteous. It makes me righteous. We all want to be part of the in-group. And so at least in part, Paul writes to address this impulse. He preaches the gospel to them on their own terms. He critiques this idea of mystery and then brings the gospel home. Paul calls this the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery. So first aspect of mystery is this idea that there is one people of God and Gentiles are included in that people of God. And then maybe you would say the bigger mystery, the secret of the universe, is is God revealed in his son Jesus. Colossians 2.2, he wants them to have full assurance of the knowledge of God's mystery. What is the knowledge of God's mystery? It's Christ, which is Christ. What is the deeper wisdom of the universe? It's Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, yeah, those mysteries do exist. There is a mystery to spiritual fullness. There, There is a mystery to accessing the presence of God. There is a mystery to the power of the divine. But those mysteries are not found with the gurus. And they are not found in the temples. They are found in a person. 
They're found in Jesus, and you have him. Mystery for Paul is not about ascending. It's about beholding where God has descended. Paul says in 2.2, the goal is to reach all the riches of full understanding, which is Christ in whom are hidden. And he means here, stored up, contained, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Can you see Paul's clear proclamation of the sufficiency of Jesus and the way this comes about? Do you see to whom this sufficiency is available? It's not for the elite. It's not for the spiritually successful. It is for everyone who is in union with Christ. All of the treasures are in him. And if you are a Christian, here's the amazing thing. He is in you. You have everything in him. All of the treasures of God are yours. The great preacher Dick Lucas writes, When we have begun to grasp the greatness of Christ, and then we grasp the closeness of the union that we have with him, he in us, we in him, we can ask for no more. That is the mystery of the universe. Christ. And the mystery blows our mind because he is in us and we are in him. Nothing lacking. If you believe in Christ, if you put your trust in him, you have the whole treasure of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's the mystery. That's the message. Now what's the goal of that message? And Paul says it's maturity. Paul tells us the why for all of his suffering to bring this message to churches like Colossae or or Laodicea. He tells you why he is going through all of this suffering and labor and toil. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who is maturity for? Did you see that? Three times he keeps saying everyone, everyone. Everyone, are we listening? Everyone, that is the goal. It's maturity. It's not just for pastors. It's not for those of us who say, I love to read theology books. That's not necessarily maturity at all. Maturity is not shifting in your hope. Maturity is standing firm. Maturity is building your life upon the rock that is Christ. Now, who's that goal for? It's not for the elite. It's not for the spiritually spectacular. It is for everyone. And that is why in the church we labor and we struggle and we toil in every generation to create mature men, women, and children. Maturity is for everyone in Christ. How does it happen? Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. It is Christ proclaimed. This is the entire point of why we should exist. Him we proclaim. It's not just to get a dose of morals. It's not to be part of something bigger than yourself. It's not uh, to have community. All of those things are wonderfully part of the package of, of Christ's church that he is building. But the point is all of those things are only rightly oriented and healthy if it is because Christ has been proclaimed. How do you grow as a Christian? You have to put yourself under the proclamation of Jesus over and over and over again. Paul mentions in 2.3, right, don't, don't be taken by plausible arguments. What he's saying there is there's plenty of persuasive rhetoric. There are a lot of great public speakers. There's a lot of great teaching and storytellers, people with illustrations and wonderful ethical discourse, and that's fine, but they do not proclaim Jesus. And therefore, their worth, if we could be so drastic, their worth might be nothing. Maybe something, but it's probably nothing. That is not the apostolic ministry. Uh, that will not survive 2070. All the YouTube guys, 
It's not going to survive 2070 unless we proclaim him. Paul would have us to know that it's to Jesus we have to return to over and over again. His beauty, his grace, his love, his authority, his holiness, his righteousness. We do not advance past him. We don't mature past the proclamation of Jesus. So this isn't just teaching. It's not just to get a Bible lesson. It's it's to get Christ. It's to have Jesus pressed into every aspect of our lives. It's as if our lives are, 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 are the dough and Christ is the yeast and he is to leaven every part of us. Even though we lack nothing of God's fullness, that's the mystery, our union with Christ, we have to grow into this experience of this union. That's maturity. Uh, the best illustration of this I've, I've heard elsewhere, which I think is really good, is marriage. I think marriage is a good illustration of this. Um, we all know, I think we all know married couples. This could be grandparents, great-grandparents. We know couples who have been together for 40 and, and 50 and 60 years, and, and they have remained married, and, and we think that's a, that's a spectacular relationship that's on display. They finish each, finish each other's sentences. Uh, they, they anticipate one another's needs. The oneness of that union, it just pops Technicolor, right? We see the beauty of marriage in those couples. None of that was true the first day they got married, right? None of that was true. And yet, objectively, they are no more married on day one of their marriage than they are on year 53. They are no more married. They are no more one union on day one than they are on year 53. But subjectively, it's completely different, isn't it? Subjectively, they they experience this identity and it has grown over time. The oneness that was there, even at the beginning of the marriage, it's yielded a maturity and richness where you look at that couple and you cannot imagine them without the other. Their marriage was pressed into every aspect of their lives. I think that's a picture of maturity in Christ. The mystery is yours, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, You have that when you believe, right? That is yours. You have the full inheritance, and yet maturity is having that reality worked into every element of your life. And then really quick, we want to take note of how Paul says proclaiming Christ also involves not just proclaiming him and teaching him, but also warning or admonishing, as some translations put it. I think this is beautiful because this is the law and the gospel, isn't it? It's the law and the gospel proclaimed. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, we warn or admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom. Here's the bottom line. I think to to grow, to mature as God's people, you have to be warned. I have to be warned. Paul is saying there are still pockets of resistance within each one of us that we cannot see ourselves. There are still places where we are are more shaped by the world than by Jesus. And this makes sense. You could think of it maybe in a way of saying, you know, who we spend time with always shapes who we become. It's true, right? If if you send your your son off to to join the football team and he comes back cursing like a sailor, sailor, you you, you kind of know where that came from, right? He's spending time with his teammates all the time. And you say, whoa, buddy, are you hearing yourself? Who we spend time with ultimately always forms us. And so this is the admonition here, right? Stay close to Jesus. We can't miss how the proof of maturity and knowledge also is what? In in chapter 2, verse 3, it's it's love. To be a people knit together in love. So think about the difference here, right? What is the result of, of this mystery? Unlike the mystery religions, it's not to be exclusive and shun everybody else. No, instead, it's it's to have love. It's to be knit together. 
Not spiritual superiority, but love. All right, so that's, that's the, the message or the mystery. The goal of that message is maturity, to have that hope firm and established and secure. And then finally, we'll conclude this morning. Here's the last point. We're going to go back to the beginning of our passage where we see this, the shape of the ministry, the shape of our calling, and this might be the hardest message to grasp. It's proclamation of a suffering Messiah proclaimed by suffering servants, but here's the thing. It's to a world that's suffering. So go to verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul says here, right, it's not that he puts up with his sufferings or he endures his sufferings or he bears them, but he rejoices in them. The Apostle Peter says the exact same thing in 1 Peter 1.6. James says something similar in James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of any kind. And so I think we can safely say that part of the apostolic message is rejoicing in suffering. Now, I don't want to hear that message. (laughs) I don't think you want to hear that message. The false teachers around Colossae, they didn't want that message at all. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Paul keeps writing to churches who have false teachers or rival factions, and they're all trying to say, why do you want to follow Paul? He's so weak. He just suffers all the time. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, well, it's in my weakness where I boast. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Five times I received the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. There was danger all around me. Toil, hardship, many sleepless nights. Hunger, thirst, exposure to the cold. Daily pressure for my anxiety for the churches. But if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because in our weakness he is strong. And so Paul can rejoice. Now, the first part of this, I think we we can all track with, right? I'm suffering for you, the church. We might say there's something similar. Think of a parent. Uh, we, We suffer for our children, and we say, I'm glad to do that. Or maybe taking care of adult parents. We, we suffer to care for them, but it's okay. We do it out of love for them. And so we're tracking with Paul, but he doesn't stop there. Maybe you notice this really tricky verse that we have in our passage. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So not just suffering for the church, but in my suffering, Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? How are Christ's afflictions lacking? Now I'll start by saying what it clearly doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that in the atoning death of Jesus on the cross there was something lacking or deficient. I think we know this because that's basically the point of Colossians, is that everything about Jesus is is sufficient. In chapter 1, verse 22, the cross has achieved reconciliation for us. And so what is lacking? What does Paul mean? How does he fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions through his own suffering? There are two angles to this that I want to explore as we start wrapping up here. Two angles to how Paul, and I think by extension you and I, how we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The first angle is that Paul is taking the gospel of the cross to the world. 
The issue here is how can the death of Jesus in Jerusalem, how can that have any power and meaning and impact, let's say in Southern California today? It's that that message of the cross has to be brought. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be taken to the world. It comes as Paul proclaims the gospel of the crucified Christ, and it brings the power of those sufferings from back then into the present, into the now. It's bringing the afflictions of Christ to the people in the preaching of the cross. And I think there's inherent suffering in the message that we are saying as a people that we believe in. Because this is a message that the world looks at as foolishness. It's a message that looks like weakness. And yet we are insisting that it is the power and the wisdom of God to save. I mean, isn't there suffering inherent in proclaiming a gospel that there's strength and weakness? Or how about this one? There is salvation and self-despair. There's clinging to one who is crucified. That word itself shares in the afflictions of Christ. And so the first angle is, is Paul taking this message of Christ's afflictions to the nations. The cross is lacking, he might say, if it is not proclaimed. The cross has to be proclaimed. Now that's the first angle, but there's a second angle. It's complementary, and it's that the package matters. The medium message, or the medium conveys the message. It matters. The word of the cross is carried by men and women whose lives look cross-shaped. What would be lacking in the afflictions of Christ for us? This is something that we're taught. It's something that we've heard. And yet it's not something that we have physically seen. And so Paul is filling up what is lacking when he himself suffers visibly. Before others, he gives us a visible representation of the sufferings of Christ in his own suffering. Paul's suffering has become a tool of evangelism, tangibly embodying the gospel in his suffering. When they see joy in the life of one who suffers for Jesus, they catch a glimpse that the cross is real and that the power of the resurrection is true. And again, it's hard to think this message will be popular. We've done a pretty good job as a society. We've, we've taken all of the resources, haven't we? We've taken the resources and we've figured out how to keep suffering at arm's distance. The narrative, I think, of our culture is that suffering is kind of this disruptive force of normal life, but that's, that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, I think the word of the gospel is the only disruptive thing, and it disrupts our world of suffering. The gospel is this disruptive word that gives our lives meaning. It validates our experience of suffering. We can say injustice and evil, they are real. My pain is validated. And, and, and everything that is the way it is, everything that is broken will one day be made whole. No, the gospel is a disruptive word to this world. All that is not right will one day be made so. But I don't think this ministry was just Paul's. I think it belongs to us as well. As we suffer, we now embody and share in the sufferings of Christ, and we exhibit Christ to one another and to the world. The biggest example of this, of course, is, is the suffering persecuted church. We need the voice of the martyrs in our life because when we think of our brothers and sisters in the global church who are imprisoned and beaten, their lives are lost for the sake of Christ, we are confronted with the treasure of Jesus. Aren't we? But of course, it's not just a calling for the persecuted church. It's also a calling for us. We are also all sufferers, which means that we all have this calling to carry the afflictions of Jesus to one another. If this seems too esoteric, I hope these closing lines will bring this home a little better for you. 
I hope your experience in the church has included seeing Christ in the sufferings of others. I'm going to say that again because that's the point of all of this for Paul. I hope your experience in the church has included seeing Christ in the suffering of others. Do you know the man who is filled with joy despite a debilitating condition? And have you walked away from that guy and said, I I have seen Christ in him? You know what Paul's talking about. The woman whose body is being taken by cancer who says, quoting Habakkuk, it's not the fig tree that's withering, it's though I wither, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And you say, wow, I've seen Christ. It's the parent who's lost a child and yet proclaims comfort in the Lord and who says, man, I know the contours of the shadow of his wings. And we see Christ in her. It's the person who we bewilderingly ask, with everything going on in his or her life, how can they sing of the goodness of God? But they do. And we are better for it because we have seen Christ. Those are all of the sermons that preach in their own way the cross of Christ, right? That's what Paul means. There's nothing deficient in what Jesus has done. What is lacking is bringing that home connecting that dot into our hearts in embodied ministry and embodied life. Through those people, we see Christ displayed. And so we will all suffer at some point. That's a a big kind of returning point I always come back to. We are all going to suffer. It's not not an if, right? It's when we suffer. And the hope is not meant, God, will you just see that I have enough, enough faith and spare me from suffering? It's may I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions when that day comes. In my sufferings, would I display the sufferings of Christ so someone might be saved? Someone might be edified? Someone might be spurred on to love Jesus more and more? It's a message about a suffering Messiah mediated by suffering servants. And friends, we are all sufferers, at least under our own sins. Going back to those polls at the beginning of my message I think this is as solid a foundation as there is. It's far more solid than than what the politicians offer. It's far far more solid than this hope of of maybe revealing the truest me which, which lives inside of my heart. Now, there is nothing more solid than the foundation of the mystery of Christ revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. To grow as God's people in our assurance and understanding, which is maturity. To build our lives on the fullness of Christ. To even in this place right now be fortified in the hope of the glory which is ours. Which we have in possession, which we anticipate in the future. Let us establish our lives on that firm foundation. Let us pray. Father, maybe above everything, would you keep us from from being an anxious people? I think that just about the the universal, maybe... um, chorus of, of, of our interpretations of the world around us, and in, in many ways we see the solutions to, to our world's problems in, in vastly different ways as a congregation, and yet that, that feeling of instability is certainly palpable right now. To read those polls and, and to believe them, because we just have to open our eyes, and, and we just have to open our ears and, and hear the, the, the inertia of, of our culture and, and its unbelief and its idols that it holds so precious 
And yet, Lord, would you make this church, not just our congregation, but but your church that you are building, would you make us a non-anxious presence in this world? Because we are so confident that, Christ, you are on your throne, that you reign, that you are building and you are establishing your kingdom um, all across the world, that we know if you tarry in 2070 and there are 30% Christians in this country, we know that your kingdom is ablaze elsewhere on this planet. We know that the gospel is spreading because you wish that none would perish. And in your patience and in your long-suffering, we are reminded of your heart and your compassion for sinners, which we experience personally, individually for us. Lord, what a gift. Holy Spirit, would you establish and secure in our lives that we would find our hope in this message of of, of Christ proclaimed. Lord, that we would grab hold of that message, that we would uh, hear that word of this goal of maturity, and then we would strive after that goal to be built up in that knowledge and in that assurance and in that growth. Lord, that we would more and more desire to be a people who build our homes, who build our lives on that solid rock who is Christ. Lord, you have to do that work, even as Paul says in our passage. He works with this power that you energize. And so, Lord, we we are so grateful that you are the one who empowers us. Do that empowering work among us, each and every one of us here. Would you do that? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.